Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Lilith, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On the podcast, we talk about how cities develop in and up. We're presented by IDEA, the Infill Development in Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit educational and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people that work to shape our city. All right. So our guest today is Jason Cunha. He's the current president of IDEA. Uh, Jason currently works at Stantec and has a solid track record of successfully executing large capital projects in the utilities and pipeline industries. And he specializes in infrastructure renewal and replacement projects. Uh, So we had a really great chat with Jason about infrastructure I definitely learned a lot of things (laughs) about how infrastructure is built and renewed in Edmonton that I didn't know. So hopefully that will provide our listeners here today with some a deep dive into that topic. Um, One of the things that we did want to mention that came up was neighborhood renewal, Um, but we didn't talk too much about what that program actually is. So we wanted to provide a little bit of background information for anyone who's not familiar with that program. So it's a city of Edmonton program where they rehabilitate street infrastructure in residential neighborhoods. So mainly it includes some roads, sidewalks, and streetlights. And it's generally a combination of rebuilding um, and preventative maintenance, you know, and sort of the intent is to extend the lifespan of the street infrastructure. So It can include things like intersection improvements, um, connecting missing pedestrian and bike lane links, um, building curb ramps to improve pedestrian safety, and um, a number of other things sort of related to that public realm and street interface within our existing neighborhoods. So we just wanted to give our listeners a little bit of an intro to that in case you're not familiar with it. Uh, that's a really wholesome definition. Thanks, Allison. This episode was uh, infrastructure heavy, and we've definitely learned a lot. Uh, so other than the neighborhood renewal program, we think Jason did a great job in defining all of the uh, terms he used and the programs, uh, city programs he referred to. So we really hope you enjoy the episode today. Uh, so let's get to it. All right, our guest today is Jason Cunha. Uh, He's the current president of IDEA. He's also a mechanical engineer and currently an associate and project manager at Stantec. Before moving over to Stantec, he worked at EPCOR. He brings a wealth of knowledge from his time there, which I'm really excited to hear more about. Um, And before that, he started his engineering career at ACCO, and that's kind of where we're going to start our chat off today. So Jason, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you on. Yeah, we just kind of want to hear a little bit more about your experience at ATCO um, and then EPCOR and kind of kind of tell us how you got closer to the infill industry. Yeah, definitely. And, and thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to make my official debut on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. Um, so yeah, I've uh, been an engineer for, oh God, 13 years now, 13, 14 years. Uh, feels, does not feel that long. Um, but yeah, started my career out at ATCO working in their uh, natural gas utility division. I think most people are in the city of Edmonton are kind of familiar with that. They're the, the gas utility um, that provides natural gas service to everyone's house. Um, so I started out there for about five years. I worked on the what they would call the distribution utility. So that's the one that actually pipes the gas directly to everyone's house. Um, 
and then the the second half of of my ten years there, I worked on the the pipeline side, so a little bit more, you know, what we'd consider in Alberta as traditional oil and gas type uh, type work. Um, and yeah, and so when I was working at Atco Gas, the kind of the first five years of my career there, I worked on uh, neighborhood level uh, and scale replacement programs, um, and kind of an, an interesting tie into the infill world that I had there that you know didn't really think about at the time, and, and it comes front of mind now when I think back to it is um, when I was a student engineer working there, I actually uh, worked on some gas supply modeling for the Blatchford community here in Edmonton. So uh, for those who are listening who aren't familiar, Blatchford is uh, a city-led, you know, huge-scale uh, infill neighborhood development here in the city. And so, yeah, just kind of thinking back to my career, it's a, it's a really random connection I had early on. So you have these uh, very, very early roots into this, uh, the world of the infill industry. It's, uh, it's great to, to see where your life takes you into places you never expect. And this experience you've, you've had uh, previously with the Blatchford neighborhood, so that's it's great to hear that you've been exposed to, to, to this world before you really immersed yourself in it. And w- once you've worked at ADCO and, uh, and developed that experience with uh, infrastructure, you moved over to EPCOR. So could you tell us a little bit um, about your involvement there? Yeah, definitely. So kind of around that time, it would have been uh, 2019, uh, an opportunity came up to move over to EPCOR Water here in the city. So the the municipal water utility. So jumped at the chance. It was a really interesting opportunity. So the, the first year that I was there, I was there for about three years. I worked, uh, I was one of the infrastructure managers in the company. So working on their internal uh, capital programs and specifically working on renewal projects. So kind of a very interesting, uh, consistent tie-in with the work that I had done at ATCO dealing with, you know, replacing and renewing old infrastructure. So I worked on that. And then the last two years that I was there, I was given an opportunity to move over to the the development industry facing side of the company. Um, and so there I became the manager of infill development planning and engineering. And it was a really interesting role because in there, you'll, I think you guys will notice, because I know your, your professional backgrounds, development planning and engineering. Um, and so that was a very kind of interesting role that I got to take on there because I was actually leading the team that did all of the responses to all the planning applications within the city of Edmonton and, and responding to them from the context of the the water infrastructure and, and those kind of requirements. So uh, in that role, I kind of got a crash course in the planning profession, um, which obviously is <laughs> very different from the engineering world and and so it was was a great learning great learning experience there and then obviously getting to kind of work with the development industry and and learning that whole kind of world that i'd never really worked with before in my career Um, and so yeah it it was a really interesting opportunity that's uh, what we like to call plungeeers over at our office. So I'm I'm glad you're an expert in both fields. <laughs> when you were with Epcor, uh, you were involved uh, with the infill cost share program. That was a pilot that ran for for two years, and I know you've worked closely with members of Idea when you were uh, doing that work. So why don't you uh, give us more insight about that? Yeah, so it was uh, it was an interesting initiative that happened when I had first moved into that role. So um, when I was in the infrastructure manager for EPCOR, one of the programs I ran was uh, what they called the Accelerated Fire Protection Program. And so really what that was is when the city of Edmonton went in and did a, a neighborhood renewal, EPCOR would come in at the same time or the year before and basically 
see you know where where are the gaps for fire protection in the neighborhood where are we missing some hydrants where do we maybe have some capacity issues and, and let's try and adjust that and fix those problems before the city comes in and puts in new sidewalks new roads all of that stuff so we're not ripping it up later on and so it wasn't the most efficient way of trying to to deal with fire protection issues because you know it was aligned with neighborhood renewal which in, in some ways was really great but it wasn't aligned with development so you might go in and do all this work in a neighborhood but then no new development happened in that neighborhood because it's not desirable maybe the the zoning wasn't right whatever it may be and so you've done all these fire protection upgrades kind of for nothing so what we ended up doing when I moved into my new role on the development facing side and, and really got involved with uh, managing that relationship with IDEA um, and with our executive director at the time, Mariah Samji, um, was looking at how can we better align some of those infrastructure programs and, and how can we try and find ways to facilitate fire protection upgrades for infill development where it was posing a really big barrier. You know, you'd have a new development come in, they'd go in for the development permit. My team would come in at that point from the EPCOR side and say, there, you're going for a higher intensity use than what's currently there. And based on the standards, there's a gap in fire protection. You know, what's there is good for the single detached homes that are in place right now. But if you want to put in row housing or if you want to put in a low rise apartment, you don't meet the current requirements of the standard and you have to do all these infrastructure upgrades. And cost-wise, it was a big problem because um, when you're dealing with in infill programs, it especially, um, you know, generally we're you're talking smaller budgets, and so when you come in with, hey, you've got to put in a, a block of new water main to address a, a capacity issue on the water system for fire protection, well, a row housing development doesn't have the budget for that. That might cost almost as much as actually building the row housing development itself. So. We looked at you know this existing program we had that was ostensibly for dealing with some of these fire protection gaps and kind of where it wasn't working with uh, what industry was really needing and, and seeing where the issues were. And what we did is we, we took the funding from that existing capital program and ported it over to run a pilot program, what, what everyone calls the infill cost share pilot. And what that involved was setting up a an application program and a ranking criteria for infill developments so that when they came in for their development permit, got conditioned with these upgrades and had that initial sticker shock of like, oh my God, this is going to kill my project. There was an out clause effectively that would allow them to apply for this program, provide all their details of, of where the development is, what type of development was it, um, and it would get entered into this big fancy spreadsheet that we had we had built and on a set of criteria that was agreed to between the city epcor as well as ideas the industry representative those projects would get ranked um, according to you know how well they aligned with the city plan and our, our city building objectives as well as you know how much are they going to cost how much budget budget do we have how big of an issue is it and basically on a semi-annual basis bunch of projects would get funding from EPCOR and EPCOR would actually go and build their fire protection upgrades rather than the developer being uh, required to do that themselves. And so um, it was a really great pilot. I think we ended up enabling 11 different infill developments um, ranging from you know row housing to a, a number of low-rise apartment developments. I think it was about 160 units of housing somewhere around that i'm very much going off of memory here uh as i haven't looked at the spreadsheets for that in a few years now 
And it was a really successful program. Yeah, so from there, we took the the data we had built through that pilot program in terms of the, the demand, where maybe there were some ways that we could tweak the ranking criteria a little bit better to make it a little more user-friendly, a little bit more clear for developers to understand, um, and built a business case that went forward to city council at uh, the utility committee meetings where EPCOR's five-year budgets get approved and actually got a, a five-year program approved because um, that's the, the funding envelopes that EPCOR takes to city council at a time. They, they budget everything over five years. Uh, so starting in 2022 and extending out to 2026, uh, there's a program in place that's now called the Infill Fire Protection Program. And it's funded at uh, $4 million a year, if my memory serves and basically serves the same function as that infill cost share pilot. Uh, so developments that can condi conditioned with upgrades can put in an application, they get ranked, and I think it's twice a year, I believe is how they're running it now. Uh, twice a year, the top ranked projects will be informed that, hey, you've got funding, Epcor will do your upgrades for you. And uh, yeah, it, by all accounts, it's, it's still a very successful program. Okay, that's really cool. I knew a little bit about the program, but I didn't know the, the nitty gritty details of, of how it came to be and sort of all the things that happened behind the scenes to bring that together. I did have kind of, as you were talking, I had kind of a couple of questions like follow up related to the neighborhood renewal. So initially, when you said that EPCOR would go in and upgrade to, to the fire protection standards, were they just basing that on what the current zoning was or were they looking at, at a more forward thinking in terms of like anticipating future density, but then that wasn't necessarily happening? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. And, you know, the, the short answer to that question is it was based on current zoning. Uh, there was a lot of conversation with it within the team, even just for the that first initial year that I ran it of, you know, is is there a way we can kind of better target things and, and try and account for how zoning might change in the future? And ultimately the, the problem we, arri we arrived at with that, trying to figure out that problem is there's just no real way to predict right as the utility company like you don't know until an application actually comes in whether that single detached home is going to get knocked down and a three unit row house is going to get put up and so that that was ultimately the problem we ran into in in trying to better target the program to support potential infill was just there was no way to really predict and make that decision of what might make sense in the future context. And and then, you know, as the utility needing to be conservative with ratepayers' money and making sure that we're not uh, having any waste in our operations, you know, you, you couldn't really take that risk of trying to like guess it yourself. Um, and, you know, talking with what I learned as uh, in the planning world when I moved into that other role, um, I would say you definitely don't want the engineers trying to predict that. Um, we're we're not the ones that you want trying to predict where development is going to happen, where rezoning might happen. Um, you, you want us sticking to the infrastructure piece and having the planning professionals like yourselves making that uh, that prediction piece of where that development might happen in the future. <laughs> yeah, the, it's the planners at the city that are identifying those areas for growth and redevelopment through city plan and and the district planning process. Uh, but then the actual build out of those areas is is market driven. It depends on the developers who own properties in those areas and decide to redevelop them 
um, and increased density. So there's multiple multiple pieces that play into that. Um, but that leads to my last question related to neighborhood renewal. Now that we have the infill fire protection program, infrastructure upgrades are identified when there's a proposal for a rezoning or redevelopment. But is there still overlap between those infrastructure upgrades and neighborhood renewal? Or are those upgrades just happening on a site-by-site basis? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I don't want to speak for my old friends at EPCOR uh, necessarily, but I am confident in saying they do try as much as possible to coordinate their, their capital work with the city's neighborhood renewal work. It just makes sense to do that, right? Let's let's get the underground infrastructure built before the city comes in and puts brand new roads and brand new sidewalks in. So they do try their best to coordinate that and with the infill fire protection program one of the ranking criterias in the assessment of you know who rises to the top to get funding uh, was you know can this be coordinated with a neighborhood renewal project does it line up timeline wise that we can do that coordination and so you know projects would get effectively bonus points if there was that opportunity to coordinate with neighborhood renewal and i believe that is still in the criteria for the program as it stands right now uh, and, and yeah, and I think, you know, it's pretty confident in saying EPCOR does everything they can to try and coordinate that work with neighborhood renewal just to minimize impact to residents and, and to minimize waste uh, of construction, obviously. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, can't again, it, it, they can't predict like where redevelopment is going to happen or where rezonings are going to happen in every single neighborhood. So, you know, it makes sense that they have those conversations when they can, but understanding that those things are driven by market forces and where developers think that it makes sense to, you know, densify and, and build infill projects. And that's not always easy to to predict. So outside of the infill cost share program, I wanted to ask you, Jason, about the IFPA, the infill fire protection program uh, that I know you were previously involved with. So before I ask you about that, uh, just a quick life anecdote for me. When I first graduated and started uh, my planning career, the first subdivision application that I've ever submitted, um, the city came back with some comments and one of them was about needing to submit an IFPA or an infill fire protection program application. And uh, I had no idea what that was at the time. It was like this mysterious requirement that I've never heard of uh, that I later found out. There's one person at the city of Edmonton who reviews these applications. So could you please enlighten other listeners who might have not had a chance to to deal with uh, IFPAs when they submit um, subdivision applications? Yeah, definitely. And that was something I got to be involved in, in that uh, development facing role I had with Epcor Water and working uh, specifically with Edmonton Fire Rescue and their engineering team that they have. Uh, no one really knows, I think, that they exist and, until this kind of an issue comes up. Uh, but they have two incredible engineers uh, in their department, Cameron Bardas and Kale Griswold, who are kind of the catch-all for anything engineering. Uh, they're responsible for the municipal fire protection standards that all developments have to comply with and, and build infrastructure for. And so in that role, I got to work with them on this infill fire protection assessment or uh, IFPA or IFPA, uh, depending on who you're talking to. And it was a really interesting thing. It, it existed for a while, um, even prior to my involvement in that world, uh, but really became a lot more formalized and a lot more structured uh, after I came into that role and started working really closely with Cameron and Kale. And 
what it was is basically a way to to look at the municipal fire protection standards, uh, the things that really drive when a development gets conditioned with water upgrades. Uh, typically, when you're going from you know a lower zone to a higher zone, uh, and you get triggered with those infrastructure upgrades. And so it's really based on how the standards work. So the way the standards work within the city of Edmonton for fire protection, they're all contained within volume four of the city of Edmonton design and construction standards, very long, fancy name, uh, and kind of buried within that very big volume of, of standards that engineers have to look at when we're designing water mains in the city is this little piece of information that lays out based on your zoning, uh, here is what the water system needs to provide in terms of fire flow. And it ranges from 100 liters per second to 300 liters per second, again, depending on what your zoning was. And one of the flaws that we found in that type of an approach where you're basing everything on zoning is when you're looking at something like fire protection, uh, where you're really talking about property safety and, and ensuring that the fire department has the water they need to respond to a fire, um, you have to look at what that worst case scenario is under that zoning. So a lot of the time when you're you're looking at that number, the standard looks at is that's like a stick built, all wood construction, super flammable structure with, with minimal uh, separation distances from stuff around it. And so you get a pretty high number. Um, and that and that's how things work. You're kind of looking at the worst case scenario under that, under that zoning, and that's what you're sizing your infrastructure for. And concurrently, that's what EPCOR was conditioning infrastructure upgrades based on, was the worst case scenario of what you could build in that zone. Now, of course, there's an underlying um, calculation thing uh, called the fire underwriter survey methodology, which is really how fire departments look at how they would fight a fire, how you figure out how much water you need. Um, kind of one of the interesting things I learned working with the, the fire department engineers on this is it also plays into like how insurance rates within a city are are set up and calculated by the big insurance companies because they they make sure that you're complying with a lot of these requirements in that underwriter survey. And so what you can do with that is you can actually use the calculation methods that are outlined in that fire underwriter survey to actually calculate a site-specific fire protection requirement. So how much fire water do you actually need for your development as designed, not the general case based on the worst case scenario in your zoning? And typically that number is a lot lower um, because especially as you get into higher intensity uses, um, you know, getting into medium density or high density, there's elements of things like building code that come in to introduce additional requirements on a building that actually make them effectively less flammable. Uh, things like having to sprinkler a building. Um, you know, if you have sprinklers in your building, it's a lot, let, lot less risky from a fire protection standpoint. And so the fire department needs less water to fight a fire at that site. And so what the IFPA process or the IFPA process brought in was an opportunity at the development permit stage where you, you know your building details, you know, how it's going to be built, how big is it, what materials are you going to use, you know all of the details you would need to be able to calculate that site-specific fire flow requirement. And what Fire Rescue would do is they would do that calculation for the developer, and then they would contact my old team at Epcor Water, and what we would provide them with is what can the water system provide to that parcel? Uh, how, how much water can we actually get out of the system? And from that point, it was a really simple calculation. If the water system could provide more fire water than what your specific development needed, 
Well, then Fire Rescue would come in and say, actually, those upgrades that Epcor told you you needed to do, whether it was you know one new hydrant or an entire block of water main, um, you don't have to do that anymore because you're good. The system can provide what you need for your specific development. Um, and it was an amazing program. When they kind of first got it set up and formalized, I think the thought was, yeah, we'll we'll be able to waive infrastructure requirements in a bunch of cases, and it'll be pretty good. It'll enable a good amount of development, but there'll still be plenty of situations where you still have to build the infrastructure. And I think at this point, you'd need to talk to uh, to Cameron or Kale to get the exact numbers, but they're somewhere between 80 and 90% of all applications that go into that program have their infrastructure upgrades waived. Um, and so it's it's been an amazing program in terms of enabling infill development within the city and eliminating what was a really big barrier, uh, especially for missing middle uh, type developments. Because when you're looking at something like a row house development, um, you know, when you're looking at that range of 100 liters per second to 300 liters per second, those developments fall like right in the middle. They need 180 liters. And the way the water system was kind of built and set up, you typically saw you were at one of the other two ends. You're either you either at 100 liters per second, and so you couldn't you couldn't supply what you needed for that row housing under the standard, uh, or you were at the high end and everything was fine. Um, but a lot of the time they were getting caught in that middle ground. But then going through this IFPA process, what we found is they typically don't need 180 because, again, there are those things from building code that come in, whether it's sprinkling or fire separation walls, different construction materials that are less flammable than just wood. Um, and so the required fire flow is actually a good bit lower than 180 liters per second. And the EPCOR system could provide that little bit more than 100 liters per second that they would need. So you'd have a row house that needed 120. And that actually worked. And so, yeah, like I said, 80 to 90% of applications were getting their infrastructure upgrades waived, and and it was great. And the, the big issue with it was capacity, because obviously Edmonton Fire had two engineers um, who were able to do this type of assessment, and they have other work to do. Um, they are the engineers for the fire department. They've got a lot of other things that the department needs them to look at. Um, so it was really a capacity issue uh, was the biggest thing with that. Um, and it created quite a lot of backlogs and, you know, do credit to the city after they really saw both how much demand there was for that program and how effective it was in enabling development. Um, they did make the case to bring in more resources into that team. And I think these days, um, the last time I talked to Cameron and Kale a few weeks ago, like I think they're floating around the one to two week turnaround time on those assessments um, compared to, I think at the worst, I think at one point they were at almost a 12 week um, delay in trying to get those things out. So the cities really turn things around. That team's really turn things around um, to make sure that that's a, a really functional piece of the, the development process here in the city. And, it, and it's been incredibly successful. That's super interesting. I didn't realize the it was that high of a percentage, like 80 to 90% of applications or 80 to 80 or 85 to 90, whatever it was that you said, um, that have their infrastructure requirements waived. And I know like for a lot of my clients that are working on, you know, smaller scale infill projects, we're often going through the IFPA process and, you know, we're always getting that, that letter back, which is always a very happy day, um, from fire rescue services that they don't require upgrades. I just kind of had a follow-up question about the about the if pot so it's looking both at like the the fire flow capacity and the hydrant spacing correct is it both of those things that are evaluated during that in that process or is it more just the capacity part of it so 
I think the answer is yes. <laughs> and there's a little bit more to it. Again, this is me kind of nerding out on the engineering side. Um, what it all really comes down to is how much water can you get to that parcel? And so it depends on how much capacity the system has. And that basically boils down to how big are the pipes and what are the pressures in the system? Um, and, you know, within the city of Edmonton, depending on where you look, there are areas with really high pressures and there's areas with really low pressures um, within a certain range that EPCOR requires, basically purely dependent on elevation. Um, you know, if you go into a lower lying area, say closer to the river, you typically have higher pressures because that pressure increases as you go downhill. Um, whereas if you're at higher level areas, um, especially at kind of the edges of what EPCOR would call their pressure boundaries or pressure zones, um, you'll typically see kind of lower pressures until you get to a point where, you know, EPCOR puts in a booster station. And once you get past that, you're back to high pressures again at the high end of the range. Um, so on the water system side, it's, it's pipe size and it's pressure. And then the hydrant spacing matters but it all kind of goes back to the capacity piece because it's where is where are the hydrants in relation to your parcel if you've got a hydrant really close to your site well the fire department has to run less hoses you lose less pressure over those shorter lengths of hose and therefore you can get more water versus if you have a hydrant 200 feet away from your parcel that's a lot more hose the fire department has to run you lose a lot of pressure and a lot of flow capacity over that length of hose and so that pushes down the amount of fire water you could you could put at that particular parcel to fight a fire. So it's kind of both. I will personally speak to the 90% waiver rate you mentioned earlier, because like you said, most of the time when I've been submitting IFPA applications, the city has usually waived the need to install more fire hydrants on site. As well as the waiting time you mentioned, I think you said about 12 weeks is what it used to be. Um, and the longest I've had to wait for is about two months, maybe at most. So that's fairly impressive uh, going down to uh, one or two weeks of review time, especially given that there is uh, only one person at the city reviewing these, or at least there was at the time when I would submit an AFPA. And speaking of efficiencies and processes, I know that you worked on, or at least are aware of, some uh, process automation work that the city has been doing with the help of EPCOR, um, and I understand this is to calculate flows. So is this an IFPA-related thing? Yeah, definitely. And I know, I think a little bit later on, we're going to be talking about zoning bylaw renewal, and, and this automation process is really all tied up with the the zoning, the new zoning bylaw and, and kind of implementing that here within the city of Edmonton. Uh, but... Uh, in the work towards that, uh, the city city of Edmonton Fire Department uh, engineers, as well as Epcor Water, had spooled up a few committees to look at the question of fire flow and fire protection standards for both infill and greenfield development. Uh, and in the infill context specifically, it's it's something that I can say, uh, you know, myself as well as Cameron and Kale had we've been talking about it for years now. We were talking about it back when I was in my old role at Epcor. We still had conversations about it even after I had moved over to the the consulting world, and uh, over the last few months, we've had the we had the first couple committee meetings to really lay out what they'd been working on in the background, and it's I have to say it's it's pretty amazing. Um, so one of the big things that always came up, and and you know we talked about it internally, we would hear it from industry all the time is 
why do we have to go to Edmonton Fire to do these calculations? Why do we have to wait for the fire department engineers to, to find the time to do this calculation to let us know uh, what our requirements would be if we're going to have to do upgrades or not? Um, and and also just the timing of it, because uh, typically it would come at come up at development permit where you know you've you've bought the lot, you've already figured out a design of what you want to build, you've spent money on planning consultants and engineering consultants and architectural consultants, uh, you've already made quite a big investment. And then you're kind of at the mercy of things when you go in for that development permit, whether or not you're going to get hit with upgrades, are you going to have to go to an IFPA, is the IFP going to be successful, right? Because 80 to 90% is great, unless you're in that 10 to 20% that doesn't get your infrastructure requirements waived. Um, so that's always really been at the forefront of the discussions of, you know, what does this look like when the new zoning bylaw comes in? How can we make the system better? So back in August, uh, Cameron and Kale sat a number of us from industry who had signed up to be a part of this committee uh, to look at what they'd been working on in the background. And it was pretty awesome. Uh, so what they've crafted is calculators. Um, so online forums that you'll be able to access where you can input your building details. Uh, and kind of a, a key part of this is I, from what I understand, they're going to be doing a lot of training sessions with industry. That's going to be really important because there's a lot of technical complexity to how these calculations based on the fire underwriter survey methodology are done. And so understanding that is going to be really important. Uh, but this online calculator where you'll be able to enter in your building details in terms of floor area, construction material type, what are your setbacks from adjacent development, is your building sprinklered or not, a few other details as well, and click a button and it'll spit out what your required fire flow is. It'll tell you exactly how much fire flow your building needs. So that's pretty amazing. Like you, we will not have to actually go and wait for the fire department engineers to do that calculation themselves. We'll have the ability to do that ourselves as industry. And I think that's going to be massive. Um, you know, if you're a developer looking at a lot in a particular neighborhood and you're going, Ugh, I don't know, like I have an idea what I want to build, but I'm a little bit worried. You know, that first step, you'll be able to go in, utilize that calculator and say, okay, I know I can come up with a development. I know I can adjust this thing to, to get to you know, 110 liters per second or 100 liters per second, let's say, if you're you're going really aggressive on trying to make it fire safe. And then the, the other side of the equation is getting that information of the available fire flow. And that piece is a little bit more complicated because the fire department guys can't do that entirely by themselves. There's a, a really important player in that equation, which is Epcor Water, the, the water company who actually runs the system, has all the models and, and knows how it works. Um, so what we've seen so far right now is they've put together a Google form uh, that will go live at some point after zoning bylaws implemented where you'll be able to input your um, parcel details. So address, legal, whatever it may be, so that they can identify exactly what piece of land you're looking at. And what their goal is when this gets released and, you know, <laughs> they're being very optimistic, I would say, you know, Everyone needs to be a little bit realistic when it releases, because I think there's going to be a lot of demand at first, even just to try this out. So I think we'll have to be patient with them and, and really bear with them in the implementation. Uh, but what their goal was that they stated in, in the committee is they want to get it down to a couple of business days turnaround. 
So you put in that request and within a couple of business days, you'll get an, e an email back saying, here's the available Fireflow for this parcel, this parcel, this parcel, whichever addresses or, or legal land descriptions you put into the, the Google form. And that's going to be pretty amazing too, um, because what that means, uh, one of the biggest things I dealt with in that role that I had at Epcor was that phone call from a, a developer who's looking at a lot in a desirable neighborhood that's gone up for sale and they go, tell me if I'm going to need upgrades before I buy this thing. But by the way, it closes in two days, so I need to know right now. <laughs> and the problem was, I, fe I felt for these developers, is I can't turn that answer around that quickly. It's just, it's just not possible with the different steps that it has to go through. With what Edmonton Fire has been working on, what we've seen in these committee meetings is we're not going to be, I think, totally there yet in terms of that perfect world where you just click on a lot in one of the city's fancy uh, mapping programs and it just has the number there for you. Uh, but we're getting to the point where potentially we're looking at a couple of business days turnaround to be able to make that decision. And where we're talking about the world of, of trying to execute a land purchase and, and trying to make that call on a relatively quick turnaround of, can I do what I want to do on this lot that's come up for sale? I think we're going to be pretty close to being able to do that. And I, I think that's going to be a really big barrier to infill development that no one really talks about because there's all these inputs into it. And it's kind of a complex thing to think about. But that is really a problem right now for a lot of infill development in the city. And I think we're going to be very close to have having that barrier eliminated almost completely. And so that's one of the things that hasn't really been talked about a lot that I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, hopefully in the new year as things start to get implemented. Yeah, I think that's if that's huge um, to be able to get that information in that fast of a turnaround. I'm sure that will make a huge, huge difference for folks that are looking at buying land. Like I know we get that question from clients a lot as well. They're like, oh, I found this lot that I want to buy. What do, what do I need to know about it? And it's it's not possible to get that information that quickly right now. So that's that's a huge, that would be a huge win for when that comes online and if the turnaround can be that quick for sure. Sounds so dorky, but I'm I'm actually really excited. Yeah, and I think, you know, just kind of a, a heads up for our members and, um, you know, what I can say is that perfect world of being able to just click on an interactive map on the city's website and get that available Fireflow right then and there. Um, it's not coming yet. Uh, it, they, there's still a lot, but the one thing I can say is, you know, Edmonton Fire and Epcor haven't given up on that as a possibility. Uh, I've been pushing them for it quite hard. Um, and I feel like I almost need to apologize for, to my friends over there because I know I've been a bit of a pain with respect to that. But, uh, you know, we haven't given up on it. They haven't given up on it. And they are still looking into whether technically and it's actually feasible to do um, because that is really the the promised land that I'd love to get us to within the city is, is literally just click on a map, the number's there, and you can make that call right there in a split second of, can I do what I want uh, on this lot? Am I going to be able to build the thing that I, I, I would like to do and that I've been planning for? Um, so I haven't given up on that dream and, and I'm still hopeful we're going to get there eventually, just not not next year immediately. It'll still take a bit more time, I think. I think that it's incremental change, right? Like this is a, a good first step, um, you know, reducing a time frame that's 12 weeks or eight weeks or four 
weeks down to a couple of days is a huge improvement. And I, you know, I'm not an expert in data management by any means, but I have done a fair amount of GIS and it's difficult to build large data sets of really good data. Like that's not an easy undertaking. Um, So I can understand why that's something that hopefully they can get to in the future. Um, And I, yeah, I would be very excited to see that if it comes to that. Um, I guess this is like a nice way to to kind of transition. It's your experience with EPCOR and your background there is very valuable, I think. And just on having those connections with the folks at EPCOR um, and the city. So kind of like transitioning into like how you got involved with IDEA when you left EPCOR and, and came over to Stantec, if you want to kind of talk a little bit about what you've been doing at Stantec since you started there and, and how you ended up getting involved with IDEA. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, the opportunity came up uh, just about two years ago now. I think I, I hit my two-year official anniversary with Stantec in January. Um, opportunity came out to, to make that move over and uh, join Stantec's community development team. Uh, so, really working working in land development, working with the, the developers who are actually building our city day to day. So moved over. Uh, it's been two years. It's been awesome. It's an incredible team over here. Uh, obviously, people I knew to uh, certain degrees of fam- familiarity when I was at EPCOR, you know, reviewing applications, reviewing drawings. Um, so that was kind of the nice piece of the transition is it wasn't going into an entirely new place where I didn't know anyone. Um, and yeah, working on projects across the entire spectrum of development. So, uh, you know, I know it's a dirty word, but yeah, working with greenfield developers and and doing development in uh, the brand new neighborhoods here in Edmonton, uh, and also working on uh, some really exciting infill developments here within the city. So it's been really nice to kind of see both sides of the industry from the the builder, developer, consultant side of the equation. Now, um, it's been great. And then with respect to idea. It was a pretty, I would say, organic thing because, uh, you know, I think pretty much as soon as it uh, became public knowledge that I had left EPCOR, moved over to Stantec and, and joined this side of the industry, Mariah and our, our past president, who at the time was our, our president for IDEA, Chelsea, um, called me up pretty quickly grabbed lunch with me and and made it pretty clear that, hey, we'd, we'd love to have you join IDEA and, and get involved from this side of the equation. And it was just, it was a really natural fit. Uh, obviously had already worked with them extensively on a number of initiatives. We we always worked really well together uh, in that past life. And, uh, and in that role that I had at Epcor became really passionate about infill development and, and trying to remove those barriers that existed because you know it's 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 an important part of of city building and and really enabling that redevelopment in our core, enabling the ability to build up rather than just out. Um, you know, I think a lot of the time we get into a, like a really firm dichotomy of you know it's it's got to be either either a city sprawls out or a city builds up and gets super dense. And kind of having seen both sides of the equation on in both roles that I've had, um, I think it's really important to just enable both of them and remove the barriers to development writ large. Um, and so, yeah, that connection with IDEA just, it, it worked really organically. Well, I wanted to say congrats to you, Jason, for being with Stantec for two years now. Your professional journey seems to be a perfect mix of what was at first unintended involvement within Phil through your work at Epcor. 
When you joined Stantec, I understand that this was the first time in your career that you were able to involve yourself with ID and begin your involvement in advocacy work. Uh, whereas before, when you were with EPCOR, you were on the other side of the equation and you were helping ITA with their advocacy, but from the industry side. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that change? It's been an interesting change. Uh, I don't think there's really another way to say it. Um, it's it's two totally different worlds. You know, when you're when you're working on what I would say is effectively the municipal side of the equation. You know, I know here in Edmonton, you know, for those listeners who aren't aware, uh, EPCOR is an arm's length private corporation. The city is their sole shareholder, but they they do operate as a proper company. Um, but especially in the role I had, you're so tied in with city administration. I worked so closely with so many people over at the city of Edmonton that like, it's pretty hard to think of yourself as completely separate from the municipal uh, side of the world. And then moving over to the, the private side of development, uh, you know, working, working at a consultant, working with all of the developers who are actually, you know, out there every day building, building our city. Um, it's been quite the shift, um, but it's been really good uh, being able to see both sides. I think one of the things that I try to bring to the work that I do every day with with my clients and with our team over at Stantec is really trying to bridge that divide between what industry thinks, what industry's pressures are, what industry wants, um, but also understanding that you know on the city side, on the utility side, they have requirements too. They they have needs, they have wants, and trying to bridge that gap between the two and build that understanding. Because I think one of the things I saw the most when I was working at Epcor is you end up in a lot of conflict sometimes between industry and between you know the regulators, the the city or the utility company, uh, largely because the two sides of the equation don't totally understand how each other work, um, and it's you know sometimes it's talked about as like oh the the so the city and the utility company think that developers just have unlimited money and we're just making so much profit on this side of the equation and um i think on the other side developers and and builders think you know these guys just they don't they don't care they don't they don't care about building our city like they're just they're being unreasonable um when a lot of the times it's it's very much in the middle um and just not really seeing each other so uh yeah for myself it's it's trying to kind of bridge that gap um to build that understanding between the two sides of the equation because i think when you understand what the other side needs a lot of the time it's not actually that hard to meet the requirement and there are different ways of doing it that we might think of on the industry side that the city or EPCOR wouldn't think of because again they work in a totally different world they have totally different world rules that they have to adhere to um, that you know you learn to think within the context of those rules um, and so when you kind of build that understanding and get each other talking a little bit better um, ideas can kind of come to the fore that no one would think about on their own and and yeah there's there's been a number of cases in my projects where getting everyone to the table really trying to avoid that confrontational situation that can happen at times and really getting each other to talk about you know what are the needs what are the inputs where where are our red lines that we really can't go past but where do we have some flexibility um, that i think is where you can kind of come with a development project and really get to the ideal solutions i think that's 
you are in a really unique position that way because you have that experience from working in Epcor and now you're you're working on the industry side. And so being able to sort of like leverage that knowledge of of both sides of the coin is is a really great position to be in, particularly as the president of IDEA. Um, you know, that sort of those connections and that knowledge base is great for that role. So I just kind of want to talk a little bit more about um, IDEA and, and your role as president. Um, you know, what what have you been working on um, as president and what, what are you kind of thinking about for, for 2024? Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, it's been an incredibly exciting year as president. I became president back in May of this year at our last AGM and really had the advantage to kind of build on and continue uh, some of the incredible work that had been done with the organization under our past president, Chelsea Jursak, and just the, the incredibly strong foundation she's built for the organization over, I believe it was four years that she was our president. So it's it's been great. I think I bring a little bit of a different lens to the organization than I think what we've seen from past presidents. I think the majority of our presidents in the past have had more of a planning background and more of a, a builder developer background. Um, you know, I come from a completely different world as as an engineer, um, and like you said, an engineer who's worked at the utility and is now working at a consultant. So um, a very different lens. And you know, for me, obviously, infrastructures that big focus when when I'm looking at things. I'm really looking at what do we have to build? How do we have to build it? How is that going to create issues for infill? How can we address those problems with respect to infrastructure? Um, while not neglecting the planning stuff, because as I've as I've learned over the last few years in those roles, the planning piece is super important too, and, and they really go hand in hand. So, you know, one of the things I've been most excited about having been able to kind of lead lead the final charge and, and get things over the line after all the work that Chelsea's done over the years is is uh, see zoning bylaw renewal be taken over that finish line and actually be approved by council uh, last month. Um, that I think is an incredible change uh, we're going to see to the the regulatory framework that we have within the city uh, for development. Um, you know, I think it it should go without saying, but I don't know that everyone really understands that Edmonton, as a jurisdiction, has really been a leader in that type of of work uh, compared to pretty much every other municipality in in Canada, and I think North America is my understanding from talking, especially to a lot of the folks over at city administration. Um, and so, you know, being able to see that uh, get over the line, looking forward to January, the implementation of that, and really getting to see how that's going to change the way our city grows, how that's going to open up new opportunities for our membership uh, to build the projects that people want, uh, right? A lot of these changes are really about enabling the things that we know the demand and the need is there. And we've just had these roadblocks in the past that's been preventing it from happening. Um, so yeah, incredibly excited and, and proud to be able to have seen that over the line. Um, I think for ideas and organization, uh, my my kind of secondary focus this year has been uh, trying to grow the organization. Uh, so really pushing to take a lot of what we do in our events to the next level, uh, working alongside our our current our new executive director nicholas who i believe is going to be on a future episode uh, for people to get to know him uh 
And so really trying to, to push the revenues of the organization, push what we can do as an organization, uh, hosting some really big events this year uh, on a scale that we, we haven't done before, which was a, a big stretch, a big challenge, but really successful. Uh, back in, I think it was May, we had our 10-year our gala. It might have been June. might be June. Uh, we had our 10-year anniversary gala, uh, which was the biggest event that we've put on to date um, was incredibly successful, an amazing night just to celebrate uh, the last 10 years and everything that's been accomplished by ideas and organization and all the people that have contributed to that success over the years. And then just last month, we had the uh, second edition of our, our infill symposium, uh, what we called this year, we, we branded it, we called it infill connect, um, and really just trying to create a space for city builders in the infill industry to, to get together, have those conversations, share the knowledge of, of how things are getting done. Um, and really excited this year, we were able to kind of take a, a bit more of a, a larger look at infill than what we did last year with our first edition of it, um, where our keynote panel that you guys emceed, bringing in uh, infill city builders from other areas, not just Edmonton, but bringing in folks from, from Calgary, from BC, from Winnipeg, uh, to speak about you know, how is infill going in their areas, what, what does the landscape look like, um, and how can we learn from each other and, you know, I think the part I'm going to say is, you know, how can they learn from what we've accomplished here in Edmonton? Because I think in Edmonton, we have a very unique space where we, we have an organization like IDEA that doesn't really exist in the same scale anywhere else. And we have uh, a city council and successive city councils who've seen the importance of infill, seen the importance of trying to enable that type of development and an administration that has executed on that vision. Um, to a level that just hasn't happened anywhere else. And so it was really exciting to get everyone together at our symposium this year and, and really talk about how things look differently depending on where you are in the country right now. So Jason, I know that you have very recently became the president of IDEA in May 2023 during the AGM at Homestead. However, it seems like you've done so much since May uh, and it's, it's crazy to think you've built upon work that Chelsea's been working on as uh, the president of IDEA previously. You have oversaw the zoning bylaw renewal, get taken over the finish line, and uh, you know we're looking at an, at an implementation starting January 1st. That's great. You've also been involved in hosting you know, major events, the 10-year gala, the symposium that you've said, and both have seen quite a large attendance from the members. And I've been hearing that this year we've been getting a lot of non-members be interested in ID events too. So that's great that we're sparking interests from uh, people outside of you know, this tight-knit community. That, that is a lot. That is quite a handful. I'm almost afraid to ask you, what are your plans in 2024? Because <laughs> you get an actual <laughs> full year to figure that out, right? Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I think looking forward to 2024, it's really just just trying to keep pushing the envelope, keep doing things bigger, growing the organization, bringing on more members, um, you know, generating more revenue so we can be more effective in our advocacy um, and really push the envelope for our members uh, so that they're able to do the types of developments that the, that the demand and the need is out there for. Um, 
so you know i think looking forward to 2024 we're going to be doing our our first ever golf tournament uh and really really excited for that it's something we've thrown around in the background as a thing to do for a couple of years now uh, but we're finally making that happen I'm, I'm really excited with the work that our our board members have been doing on that and i think it's going to be uh, just a, an awesome time uh continuing on with you know the the different event series that we have you know I, as far as i'm aware i believe we're continuing with the be infill series it's been incredibly successful this year and uh looking forward to seeing that continue um and and you know looking a little bit further ahead into 2024 uh looking at the third edition of our our symposium and, and our conference and and just looking for ways that we can make it bigger um really continue to grow try and get more engagement from outside Edmonton as well, because I think there's there's so much that we can learn from other jurisdictions and that we can teach to other jurisdictions from everything that we've accomplished in the city. Um, so yeah, I think in, in a nutshell, 2024 is just going to be about pushing the envelope even further, uh, and I'm I'm really excited to to see where we take things going into next year. Yeah, you know, when we, we talk about the outlook for 2024, I think one of the the main things that we'll all be keeping an eye on is the zoning bylaw implementation. And we've kind of been talking about that on and off um, through our conversation. And, um, you know, we've, we've also been talking about the infrastructure piece of, of city building. So I'm just kind of interested to hear, like, what's your perspective on how zoning bylaw renewal and the new zoning bylaw fits in with the other pieces that go along with that process? Yeah, for me, when I think about zoning bylaw renewal, and when I've been engaged in it across my my different roles, I, I think I take a very different viewpoint of, of what zoning bylaw renewal means and, and what I initially think about it. So you know, I think when most people think about changing changing the zoning bylaw in our city, um, we're really talking about a, a planning exercise um, and and the planning rules of our city of of where you can build and what you can build. And the interesting thing from from my side of the equation, having been an engineer, working with the utility company, working on the design consultant side of things, what I see is a fundamental change to the design standards of all of the infrastructure we have to build to support all of that development in our city. You know, I think I talked about it earlier when we look at our, our fire protection standards, our, our water standards uh, in the city of Edmonton and, and extends out to our the design standards for how we design sewer mains and storm mains in the city. Almost everything is tied to zoning. And so if you make this big fundamental change to what our zones are and what's permitted under those zones, all of a sudden you change what those design standards need to say and what they need to consider and, and how we need to guide engineers in, in what you need to take into account and how you design the pipes that support everything that we do. And so for me coming onto the idea side, especially was really porting over what I had been working on with folks at the city with zoning bylaw renewal when I was in my EPCOR role of like, this is a second huge change that we're making that I think sometimes gets forgotten. Because again, zoning bylaw, it's a planning thing. Everyone thinks about planning. 
and so you know really excited to say we've we've seen a lot of work being done on this by uh, the city of edmonton by the fire department engineers by epcor with their design standards um, that we all have to follow um, and there's been a number of committees that were struck this year uh, by epcor and by the city of edmonton to really bring together industry leaders um, both from the infill and the greenfield uh, industry associations as well as experts from the city and from epcor uh, to sit down and really discuss how do we do this? How, how do we change these standards so that they align with the new zoning bylaw? And also, you know, to the to the credit of EPCOR specifically and the team over there, um, how can we make things better? How can we build more flexibility? Where have we been historically over-designing things? Um, because you know, when you're designing municipal infrastructure, typically you try to be conservative. The worst thing that can happen is you design a pipe that's too small <laughs> for what you actually need, because now you've got to dig a giant hole in a road to change it later on. No one wants to be in that situation. Um, but the converse side of that is a lot of the time you end up being way more conservative than you need to be. And what we've seen specifically with the water and the sewer utilities over the years um, is things actually become a lot more efficient. You know, when we think about water use within our homes, everything has changed from even when I was a kid. Um, you go back to when I was, you know, probably five, six years old, you're talking, you know, seven, six, seven liter flush toilets. And that has dropped at, like constantly since then. Um, you know, we've got high efficiency faucets, high efficiency shower heads um, that all have continually reduced the per capita water use within the city. Um, so water use is going down. And then on the flip side, well, your sewer main use goes down because the less water you use, that's less water eventually flowing into your sewer pipes. Um, but the design standards for this stuff hasn't changed in years. And so what zoning bylaw renewal presented was an opportunity to really modernize those standards and try and get things to a more realistic level of, of what we're actually seeing being built today, um, while also keeping in mind that things are still becoming more efficient. Um, we're, we're seeing right now, you know, talking to some of the folks over at EPCOR, we're seeing like one 1.2 liter flush toilets coming out. Um, which is just an insane reduction in water use. Um, Cause you know, that's one of the biggest water uses it in a home is the toilets. Um, and then, you know, speaking to one of the folks over at EPCOR at, at one of these committee meetings, one of the things they brought up is they're seeing in certain jurisdictions in the world, like not here, but they are seeing like composting toilets where you don't actually use any water or you use almost no water. Um, so also looking forward to, you know, how are things going to continue changing and, and how do we make sure there's a degree of flexibility that you can account for that? And the same thing on the, the sewer pipe side of things, um, looking at that, that generation standard, you know, how much water is then flowing through into the sewer mains, making sure we're, again, not oversizing things for what we're actually seeing being used um, and trying to strip out some of the conservatism that's been in those standards. So when we look at what uh, we build our, our sewer mains out of compared to what we built them out of 40 years ago, you know, the, the building materials have improved. And so just on that basis alone, we're seeing less of this, what they call in the industry, inflow and infiltration um, from groundwater seeping into these lines. 
and then even you know on Epcor side again trying to push the envelope trying to make sure we're we're not being overly conservative where we don't need to be they've been installing monitoring in their system they've been looking at what does this look like across the city and they're even finding depending on where you are in the city it, it's different um, which makes sense when you think about it depending on where you are in the city the water table could be at a different level maybe it's at the pipe level maybe it's below and that would affect it too um, so they've been looking at on one of the committees you know what what should those numbers in the standards actually be what are we actually seeing with modern construction materials and, and with where we are in the city uh, again looking towards can we push those numbers down do they actually need to be as high as they are because if they don't that means smaller pipes and ultimately smaller pipes means less cost less likely requirement for for upgrades and ultimately more likely that an infill development can be successful than it would be otherwise um so so yeah and all of this has been triggered by the zoning bylaw renewal and having to look at how are these standards currently set up how does it tie into zoning and what do we need to change now because we're changing all of the zones and changing what's permitted under them um and yeah so i'm i'm super excited to see all of this stuff get implemented uh in the new year i believe most of it is planned to be implemented in January when the new zoning bylaw renewal comes in. Um, EPCOR and the fire department folks have been planning for uh, some contingencies uh, to ensure that they can kind of deal with the, the one-off situations and the hiccups that we're inevitably going to have as we try and make this massive change to um, the regulatory framework and all of the processes that we're going to have to work through with the city for development. Um, but again, super excited to see what this landscape is going to look like with respect to, to infrastructure in the city when the new zoning bylaw comes into play, um, because I, I think it's it's going to have a much bigger effect on how we build our city and the infrastructure we have to build um, in ways that I don't think a lot of people in the city have appreciated, again, because the conversation has really been focused on the planning and the the above ground buildings that it enables. Um, but I think some of the changes we're going to see with the, the pipes underground, I think are going to be even bigger in some ways than what we're seeing with the, the zoning framework. Um, and I'm, yeah, just really excited to see that come into play next year. Um, Jason, I was, you know, I was going to bring up a question during today's uh, podcast session and get all, you know, innovative and ask you about district planning. But there you are taking it a step further and talking about compost toilets and all this crazy, you know, uh, saving of the water. And I, I didn't even know that existed. So you really one up me on that. So. <laughs> District energy, not district planning. Sorry, that uh, in uh, in Blatchford, uh, district energy has been a topic. But maybe when you come back in the podcast, we can talk about that because that's that's another uh, great uh, topic of conversation. But I also wanted to yeah thank you for uh, bringing this engineering lens and this infrastructure and this servicing lens into the process that goes through in creating this zoning bylaw renewal and all the efforts from the engineering side that have been put in into this initiative, uh, mainly because as a planner, and Allison, I don't know about you, but as a planner myself, when I was reviewing the new zoning bylaw renewal, I wasn't even looking at the engineering implications. I was looking at the uh, zoning regulations, the policies, the process to get things approved. So it's uh, it's been really informative to hear from you to see how 
the new zoning bylaw is directly re- related to any changes in the engineering role we're going to see in Edmonton moving forward. With all of this newly learned information, I think we all need to take a minute to digest everything we've uh, we've learned from you today, Jason. So thank you so much for taking the time and informing us and the listeners of the podcast uh, about this wonderful world of uh, engineering and planning that you're involved in and all of your work with IDEA. It's been uh, certainly refreshing to hear a, a different outlook and a different uh, point of view on how all of this has unfolded over time. Yeah, so to wrap up, yeah, thanks, Jason. This was really great. I I do have a background in engineering, but I've never worked in this this area of the engineering world. So I understand bits and pieces of it and and whatnot, but it's nice to to hear sort of more of the nitty gritty details behind behind all the other pieces that fit together. And I think when people think about city building, probably engineering standards are not the first thing that they think of, but it's a pretty critical piece of the puzzle. Uh, and so I'm, I'm happy that you were able to come and, and chat with us today and shed some light on that. So thanks so much for for chatting with us and, and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast in the future. Yeah, happy, happy to be here and, and thanks for so much for having me on. It was fascinating to hear Jason's story and see how intertwined his um, infrastructure experience was with planning and infill development. And uh, I guess that's why he was seen as uh, the right candidate to join IDEA as the president in the first place. I would mention that his time and ability to volunteer with IDEA came in at a very critical time, you know, just as the zoning bylaw renewal initiative uh, was coming to its end. And he was able to contribute that infrastructure piece to the conversation. I, however, did miss the AGM at Homestead, uh, and I wasn't able to see him accept that position. But um, were you there, Allison? No, I wasn't. I, I know Chelsea was there, and I think uh, my colleague Jeff would have been there as well for the AGM. So yeah, I mean, congrats to Jason for for taking on the, the president's role. Um, and yeah, I agree with you that that knowledge of infrastructure is so important. And I think the more interdisciplinary experience that we have amongst like the board members of IDEA, the stronger it is, right? So we have that knowledge base to draw from a variety of different folks and their backgrounds. Generally speaking, the whole conversation was interesting to me. You know, I have a sort of high level knowledge of infrastructure, but to be able to do a deep dive was pretty interesting to me. Um, You know, just because of my background in engineering, I do find this stuff intriguing. Um, But the thing I didn't know and what I found most interesting was around the timelines for completing the infill fire protection assessment or, you know, IFPA or IFPA (laughs) goes by a variety of names, I think, in the development world. Um, I didn't realize that they used to take that long to get completed. Um, And now that time frame to receive that assessment is a lot shorter. And it makes a huge difference in, you know, if you're going through the rezoning process or the redevelopment process, and you're waiting for that information to come in, for that to be completed on a faster timeline, could make a huge difference in, in sort of the overall timeline for redevelopment. So yeah, that was the, that was my key takeaway from our chat with Jason. Um, You know, and kind of Going from there, we wanted to talk a little bit about like other things that have been happening in the infill community and, you know, what we've been up to lately. So what's going on in your world, Lilith? Uh, Oh, my gosh. In my world, there is uh, so much happening. So at the time we're recording this podcast, 
It is Thursday, November 23rd, and tomorrow is the 2023 Urban Design Awards Gala, which uh, I'm going to. So this uh, design gala uh, will showcase best examples of urban design in Edmonton. And I think it's happening at the City Hall, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, check out the Eventbrite uh, page. Uh, so uh, I actually haven't had the chance to see the nominees for this year. It's just been so busy. I haven't um, voted. So uh, I actually couldn't find uh, anywhere online information of um, who is nominated. So it's going to be uh, it's going to come to a complete su- surprise tomorrow night for me to to see who's even included, who wins. Um, so really, really excited about that. Um, especially since the last Urban Design Awards Gala that was held was in 2019. Um, So there was a little bit of a gap between then and uh, this year. But in 2019, they had uh, a couple of uh, just beautiful buildings that really stood out to me, Um, one of them being The Edge, uh, which uh, uh, won the Award of Merit. Uh, Dub Architects designed that one, I think, and... The second one was the Oliver Exchange uh, building that uh, Belgian Developments was involved with. I think you have great opinions about that building, Allison. <laughs> yeah, I I live in Oliver and I go to the Oliver Exchange building a lot. Um, I think it's it's just such a great use of space. Um, it's so popular. I think it's one of the, you know, if somebody was to say, what would you do if you were going to hang out in Oliver? I think most people would probably say go to the Oliver Exchange building. Um, and the fact that it's sort of kitty corner to Paul Kane Park, which is my favorite park in Oliver, might be one of my favorite parks in the city. It's just like such a great spot to hang out in the neighborhood. Um, so, yeah, I am lo- love that building. Glad that it won an award. <laughs> I'm still hoping that uh, iconoclast uh, coffee roasters will extend their hours on week uh, weekday evenings so I can go there and work on my stuff after work hours. Yeah, it's a great little spot to do some work. So I would definitely be down for that as well. If, any, there, if there's any uh, iconoclast owners listening, that's your cue. <laughs> There, there are other great things happening um, in the Oliver neighborhood, um, and I, I think you've been a resident there for for a while, and, and you're in the OCL Community League. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what's new and exciting there? Yeah, yeah, I have been in Oliver for a long time, um, so very, very timely topic. Um, actually, we were just starting the neighborhood renewal process in Oliver, um, so they've just started the engagement Um, part of that piece where they talk to community members about, you know, the current state of the the streets and sidewalks and street lighting and all that stuff within the community and identify where there's gaps and where things could be improved. So we, there, we had a, a workshop at the beginning of November where we had a lot of community members come out um, and provide their input, which was really great. And I'm excited to see what the end result is because we, as a neighborhood that has a lot of pedestrians, we have a lot of cyclists, you know, it's very sort of multimodal transportation. There's definitely areas where the sidewalks can be improved, pedestrian and cyclist uh, safety can be improved. So I think it'll be, there'll be some really great conversations going forward in the future. And I'm excited to see how that all um, comes together in the next, I think, three years or so that it, that it'll be happening. 
I love how uh, timely this is, especially since we talked about uh, neighborhood renewal with Jason uh, earlier this episode. So I'm really excited to see how that all turns out in Oliver. So keep us all uh, updated, Allison, in the <laughs> next yeah, definitely. Uh, episodes to come. Great. So it's uh, it's been a whirlwind of an episode. We've we've definitely all learned a lot. So uh, thanks to uh, Jason for taking the time to record with us this episode. I'm Lilith. And I'm Allison. Thanks for listening and tune into the next episode. Mm-hmm.